Philippians chapter 1, starting from verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident that in the Lord, um, confident in the Lord, and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I want you to use your imagination again, please, not about a suitcase, um, but about a ladder. So in front of you is a ladder, and it's called the Ladder of Abstraction. Every day, hundreds of times a day, you and I travel up and down the ladder of abstraction. At its base, there are concrete decisions that we have to make, the stuff of life. Emotions, they're somewhere in the middle. And at the top, you've got aspirational stuff and big questions of life. It's the ladder of abstraction. Example, please. So, with values at the top and decisions to be made at the bottom... You get up in the morning and it's big decision number one. Not that big. Do you obey the alarm clock or not? It's a concrete decision of life and then it progresses to uh, do I brush my teeth or not? Can I get away with it? Can I do chewing gum? Do I put my tie on or will I accept a detention if I don't wear my tie? It goes throughout the day. Do I turn my phone off or not? Do I answer politely or not? That's the stuff of life. Do I turn to the right or to the left? Do I pay the bill or do I accept the fine? Do I move here or there? Now we're traveling up the ladder. It's still a concrete decision, but it's got implications for life. How do you feel about how that person spoke to you? Now we're going up the level of abstraction. It's, it's a feeling. And now you get up even higher. Why am I here? Now that's a big question. What is my life about? What's my goal in life? What's my purpose? Why does God allow? If God is there, does he care? Now that's a huge question. Those are big questions. And can you see that up and down the ladder, you and I travel every day, 100 times a day, values there at the top, emotions and feelings there in the middle. But then there's the detailed stuff of life. Do we turn left or right? Do we wear this or that? cornflakes or muesli or nothing 
Um, butter's gone up 25 pence in a week. Do I buy it? Do I not? Do I go, Marge, can't do that. That's anathema to me. I've got to go butter. Therefore, what goes out of the chopping basket? And that's just in my heart. Um, and so on. It's the rule of abstraction. It's the ladder of abstraction. We saw last week, didn't we, in this journey, as we did a deep dive, it's an American phrase, we did a deep dive into the book of Philippians. And we see that Paul's servant, the servant of Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul, rather, Jesus' servant, is in prison. And there's lots of clues rooted, friends, in these verses, key words that teach us that Paul is in prison. I want you to find them throughout the service. But the Apostle Paul has not got a TV in his prison cell. He's in the Mamertine prison in Rome, and he's writing to his friends across the sea and across the land in Philippi. This is the church that God enabled him to establish and to plant. And yet they are very much in his mind's eye, verses 1 to 11. They're in his heart. He has affection and longing and passions right in the middle of the rule, the ladder of abstraction. He wants to see them. But he can't because he's chained to a massive bloke who's trained in killing people. The Praetorium Guard. These were the best of the best. It's the SAS troops. And he's chained to this big geezer. And he's hairy and he's sweaty and he's skilled in taking the life from people. He does what his commander-in-chief says. And if the Apostle Paul steps out of line, it will end in one way and one way only. That means the Apostle Paul has not only lost his career, he was a superb church planter around the Mediterranean, he's lost a lot of dignity. I need the bathroom while I'm coming with you. I'm feeling cold, we'll live with it, deal with it. Life is hard for the Apostle Paul. Life did not... uh, pan out the way he thought it was going to be he was going to have a long life serving king jesus planting churches telling people about the hope and resurrection of jesus christ and now well now he's facing a change in circumstances and the the church in philippi are no doubt thinking what is god doing in his life what is god doing through our our great leader is there any hope for us there's certainly no hope for him they're facing despair They're wrestling with disappointment and discouragement. And yet here is the Apostle Paul and there's not one whiff of, well, of what we would call a pity party. It's the Apostle Paul, he's writing about hope. He's talking about joy. He's talking about a future day when the Lord Jesus will return. In that day, he's looking through prison bars and he's seeing glorious future things. And so he says in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. These verses are jam-packed full of reality. The letter of uh, Paul to the church in Philippi is full of reality. It's the reality of the hardness of life. It's like a, a furnace life in God's goodness and it produces good things for us. But it is hard. It is furnace life like. And uh, Paul says, well, this is the key to life that I've found. And I want to share it with you, church in Philippi, so you're not tempted to lose heart. This is what God has taught me about life. Life is hard. Life is like a furnace. But here's the key. The key is how you define what life is. Let me tell you what I've learned. And he starts writing in verse 12. Let's look about 
Look at what, what he teaches us, please. In verse 12, the hardness of life. We need to hear this, church. The hardness of life. Look at what he says in verse 12, the first sentence we had read to us. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really... And then we pause. Here's the church. They received this letter. What's he going to say next? He's in prison. His life has not panned out as he expected. Here's the Apostle Paul. He is in God's hand, the architect of the greatest religion the world has ever seen. Masses amount of religious expansion in the first century, akin to Amazon and Starbucks's ingenuity taken to the max. Because it's not Jeff Bezos or the uh, CEO of Starbucks who are considering where can we put new shops and where can we establish new distribution centers. This is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Omnipotent, the King of the universe. And he says, the Apostle Paul, you who were such a great persecutor of the church, I will now be present in you by my Holy Spirit and I'm going to plant churches and the, the gospel is going to expand in a way that the Roman Empire never did because it will be an everlasting kingdom because I'm involved and I'm in charge. And I'm going to use you to be my light to the nations. And the Apostle Paul, God gave a, uh, a galaxy of leadership skills. So the Apostle Paul, under the authority of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, went round the Mediterranean basin, and wherever he went, thinking strategically and carefully to the great city centers of the known world, he would go, and within weeks or months, having uh, spoken the lingua franca, that the language of the day, being skilled in philosophy, knowing the, and enjoying a personal relationship with King Jesus, thousands of people were converted in whatever city center he went into. God was at work through him in a unique and powerful way. And he had to leave churches so he could go and continue the work. But he left churches in good hands with elderships that he raised up and trained remotely and in person for months and years, the best he could. And yet here is the Apostle Paul in jail and he's concerned passionately for his people, the church in Philippi. Because up and down the ladder of abstraction, right at the top, every single person, Christian, Buddhist, Taoist, atheist, has to wrestle with this question. Why is there suffering in the world? If God exists, why does he allow suffering to happen? And here's the church in Philippi, and as Christians, we have another layer to this huge question that everybody globally asks at some point in their life. And this is it. Why does our God allow suffering? Why do Christians suffer? Why do ministries end when they appear to be so fruitful? Why does a husband get cancer and leave behind four or five children and a loving wife who doesn't know how to make ends meet? Everybody faces this huge question right at the top of the ladder, uh, ladder of abstraction that says, why is there suffering in this world? Why is there evil in this land? And yet Christians have an, an additional layer of complexity that says this, why does our God allow hard things, frustrating things, difficult things, tragic things to happen to his servants? Think of all the money they gave up. Think of the career they sacrificed. Think of the hardship they went through and God treats them like that. 
Christians have an added layer of complexity to the problem of pain and difficulty and evil. Why does a good God allow hard things to happen in my life and to his servants? Is God good or did I get it all wrong? We have two good friends from seminary who God took to central China. They were there for four or five years in the hard years of language acquisition and study, cultural appreciation, all that important stuff that happens at the beginning of overseas mission. The problem was that the police found and then interrogated um, one of uh, their parents' cell groups 50 or so miles away. They got hold of a laptop and it had all the information for all the other planters and missionaries that were working together in an underground sense to, to support the church in China. Thankfully, our friends got a phone call. They had 24 hours to get out of the country before the police would knock at their door and who knows what would happen to them and their four children. They sacrificed so much to get into the country and it looks like they wasted four or five years of their life they had to leave everything behind apart from what they could carry and the money they had in their bank account to buy a flight out of there. That was just four years ago. A month, God took them back. They were not wasted years or experience. Or the story of Elizabeth Elliot. There's a, there's a picture on the screen up here. Elizabeth Elliot, who gave all her life to mission, wrote a novel. She wrote a story called No Graven Image. It's about a lady who goes into the darkest jungle to do something very difficult. She commits her life to the Lord's work. She battles hardship and difficulty. She learns language and faces inconvenience. But the novel penned by Elizabeth Elliot tells this story of how, in a tragedy, the only person who knew English, who knew Spanish, and who knew the Indian language that she was seeking to work into, was killed. And so the mission was at its end. What was God doing in this circumstance? And as Christians read this novel, they said, God would not allow that to happen. God would never do that. That would be against his loving purposes and will. They were furious. But Elizabeth Elliot said this. That's based on a true story. And it's based on the true story of her life. Christians will very often find just what the Philippians found. God does allow evil to operate in his world. And it's a deep mystery. And it's perplexing. And it's confounding. And it's, it's upsetting. And sometimes in God's omnipotent, all-knowing, all-good purposes and plans, he allows things to happen that thwart from our perspective his work and his mission and it's a deep and it's a profound mystery but if you're an atheist here this morning if you're not a christian it's hard enough for christians to hold on to even with fingertips the goodness of god in some of the decisions that happen in his omnipotent or loving or seeing plan if you're not a christian you have no right to ask the question why does a good god allow because if there's no God at all, all you're left with is, it's just the way it is. Life is just hard. Life is just difficult. It's a survival of the fittest. And it's, a, it's just a cacophony of chaos. If you remove God 
the consistent logical explanation that you need to follow to is it's all chaos. Paul says it's not chaos. But life is hard. And that's just from verse 12. The second point is that uh, life is not just hard, it's a furnace. Life is not just hard, it's a furnace. Look at verse 12 again. Let's continue reading that verse from Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Down at verse 19, please look a few sentences down. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Here's the apostle, the great apostle Paul, and he's saying, this is really hard. This stinks, would be a teenager paraphrase of what's happening in his life. But I just see a corner of God's purposes, and I know enough of God's character to say that this is hard, but I trust God in the hardness. Because God deals with his people in the desert places. He deals with his people in the furnace. And we see that time and time again throughout the whole Bible. It is hard, but look at what's happening in prison. That would not happen if Paul was not led by God into prison. Look at verse 13. The whole Praetorian Guard, all these strong, muscly men, all these bloodthirsty men, all these men that have seen the hard stuff of life and of war, now they're chained to the master church planter who's now got a very significant and powerful and successful prison ministry. The greatest evangelist the world has seen is now chained to a guard 24-7. What do you think he's talking about? Have you seen the weather? Hey, how's the latest victory going? He's talking about King Jesus. He must have been. He's talking with this one-to-one. What do you live for? What's in the suitcase of your life? He's talking about that sort of stuff. He's talking about your only hope in life and in death. And Paul is used by God in this time. Two or three times a day, at least, the guard would be changed. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the hope of the gospel. And one by one, by God's grace, they're getting converted. They're becoming Christians. You can imagine Paul saying, I wouldn't have planned this. I'm sure not enjoying this. But God is using this for his glory. God's in the business, you see, of turning something ugly into something beautiful. He's in the business of taking lead and making it into gold. He's in the business of taking coal, like in a Superman episode, and putting so much pressure on it in the furnace of life that it turns into a diamond. And that's just what God does. Looking at Joseph, there's his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. We hate him. We hate the way our father singles him out for good things and he ignores us. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him down a cistern. Don't kill him, says a brother. Just throw him down a cistern. That's the last we see of him. And a long, many years later, God raises up Joseph, not just to rescue his family, not just to rescue his people in the land of Goshen, but to rescue thousands, tens of thousands of people. What you intended for harm, God intended for good. That's how God works. It's how he works in the life of Joseph. It's how he works in the life of the Apostle Paul. Samson, Hannah, Mary, Elijah, or Sarah again. And you too. 
That's how God works. It's in the furnace. That God applies pressure, the pressure of life, the pressure of difficulty, and it's through the pressure that you see it's in Christ, and in Christ alone is our only hope. Think of the life of Abraham. Right at the very end, now I know that you love me because you did not hold on to what was so precious to you. But Abraham only saw that through the hardest of times. And the Apostle Paul, he just saw the corner of God's good plans and purposes because life is hard and God takes us into the furnace to do good things in the tough times. Look at verse 19 again. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The end of that sentence, end of sentence 19, verse 19, what has happened will result in my salvation is the actual word. I don't know quite why it's been translated deliverance because when you hear that word, if you're like me, you're thinking probably of a prison break. What Paul is thinking God's going to do is he's going to get a friend of his and there's going to be a rope that's going to be hung outside the wall and, and they're going to break him out of there. But that's not what the word means. It's the word that's often translated in the rest of the New Testament, salvation. So it says, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. So that's interesting. Because salvation in the New Testament is always used in in three senses. I'm sorry this is about grammar. So if you're at secondary school, if you've just got there, or if you're in A-levels, you may be able to remember this more than someone with gray hairs. Who knows? But perhaps they taught grammar in the old days. They don't do it so much in the new, perhaps. But this is what it means. There's, this word can be used in three ways. Past, present, future. Let me explain. You can use the word salvation in the New Testament to say, well, in the past tense, you're, you're, you're saved by Jesus' sacrificial death, life-giving death on the cross. You're saved from the penalty the justice of God for the penalty for your sin. You're, you're saved in the past, but then you're also saved in the present because you're saved in the present from, for sin's power, the effects of sin. You're, you're now saved in the past from the penalty, but in the present from, from the effects of sin. But you're also saved in the future because you, you're saved in the future from the presence of sin in heaven where there'll be no more tear-stained eyes or sorrow or hardship or difficulties. So there's three senses past, present and future that you're saved by God's life-giving death on the cross and that's what Paul is saying end of grammar Paul is saying I rejoice because I know that this hard life the furnace that God has led me into and is with me in the midst of whether I end up facing execution or not I know that a good God is refining me I know that a good God is with me, strengthening me. I know that a good God has not and never will abandon me. It's making me more like the person I want to be. And who's that? It's making me more like Jesus Christ. Life is hard, but God has never abandoned his people. He works in the furnace of hardship and difficulty, of suffering. And we know lots of that in our church this year, don't we? But Paul is being more conform to the likeness of his saviour and rescuer and present friend Jesus Christ Paul is now more like the man of love more like a man of humanity and humility and so Paul is actually saying I need this 
It's not pleasant, but I need this. In Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, which every adult must read for themselves, but also get it for a grandchild or whoever, whatever child you know, get this book and read it, please, because it will do your heart good. It will make it sing, hence the title. There's a, there's a great story called Close to His Heart. And it's a devotional thought that says this, sometimes sheep run away. And the shepherd pursues the sheep and the sheep is kind of discombobulated. That's not a child-friendly word, I know that. Sometimes their brain is fried and they think the safest place for me is just to run away. I'm going to run away because the shepherd, and I don't know who this person is, but is he going to do me harm or is he going to do me ill? And the shepherd then jumps onto the sheep, wrestles it to the ground, ties its feet together. And at that point, I'm sure the sheep is thinking, is this person here going to kill me or capture me or eat me or protect me and provide for me? Sorry for you vegetarians out there. But that's what the sheep feels like. And yet the shepherd takes the sheep on his shoulders And the shepherd takes it safely home to a place of safety and security where it can be provided for and nurtured back to health. And the devotional says sometimes it can feel as if God is trying to kill you. But actually he's trying to save you. Now that is a deep truth. That is PhD level Christianity. But it's what the Bible shows and teaches from beginning to end. Sometimes it can feel that God is trying to hurt you or harm you or even kill you like an animal in a sheep dip, like a sheep on the shoulders of a shepherd. But actually, you're always close to his heart, and he only wants to do you good things, which is to make you more like his son. Paul is facing his trial. He's facing death. He's lost his dignity. He's lost his career. He's going to lose his future as well in terms of an earthly sense, but he's not cast down. How on earth... Does he have this countenance of joy, rejoice, this this hopefulness that he can see through and beyond the bars to to a future day of seeing Christ? He trusts God enough to see that this is what he needs. How about you? This will mature me. This will make me more like my Savior. I don't like that this is happening but I will be conformed more to the person of Jesus Christ through this. That does not happen automatically. The Bible is not naive. But those who can trust God and see God's goodness in his good hands, even if it's really dim, they will be matured through the hardness of life as they trust God one day at a time. Life is really hard. Life is like a furnace, but God is good. So it all comes down to this. What's the secret that God has showed Paul in his incarceration, in his prison cell, in his dark dankness, in his smelliness, in his uncertainty of an earthly future? What key does Paul have that he can share with us so that we understand how life works? Number three, life is hard. Life's like a furnace. It all comes down to your definition of life. It all comes down to the suitcase. Paul has found the secrets in verse 21. But notice verse 19 and 20. What's Paul saying? I expect and I hope 
that I will in no way be ashamed. I expect and I hope that what has happened to me will be for my salvation. And then he sums it all up and puts it in a suitcase, a truth-filled, saturated suitcase. Verse 21, it says, For to me, to live is Christ. For to me, to live is... Now, what would you say? Well, that's a bit personal. Well, I'm going to get very personal now. What would you say? Not from your lips, but what would your life priorities reveal? I mean, how would that sentence be ended for you, not the person next to you? We can operate with confessional theology. This is what we believe about God, but then we can operate with a functional theology. This is how we behave. And the two can be completely different. So don't tell me, for me to live is Christ, unless your actions reveal that. It's so hard, isn't it? We're so mixed. But look at your priorities. And look at your life choices. And if you want to go really personal, look at where the money flows. And then you can see what's in the suitcase of life. Then you can see where you're compromised or you're tempted to compromise. Then you can see, well, actually, I, I say I'm living for Christ, but actually comfort is very close to deposing Christ from the throne of my heart. Don't say that you want to follow Christ unless you ask yourself hard questions with the help of the Holy Spirit who longs for you to be conformed more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. How would you say, for me to live is, what would you say? What would your life priorities and life choices reveal? What is your bottom line? What is your non-negotiable personal center? You can take it all, but don't take this. When I was eight years old, it was a 50p piece. I needed to buy a present for my brother. He's four years older than me. I had a piggy bank. I opened up the piggy bank on my bed. There's some coppers in there, um, and there's a 50p piece. And my mum said to me, why don't you use that and that and that? And I said very eloquently, not silver. I didn't know how much it was worth. It was 50p. I had all these coppers. The, uh, all I had in the world was about 40 or yeah, 80p or something like that. He can have all the bronze stuff, but not silver. It was my treasure. It was a 50p piece. For me to live is a 50p piece. What about you? Here are some alternatives to living for Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ. It's the key to life, says Paul. So I can look through these bars and I'm filled with hope and joy. You can take it all. You can even take my life. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm in a win-win situation. For me to live is to have fun. For me to live is to have pleasure. Take away my pleasure. Take away my pleasure and life is not worth living. For to me to live is to be in control. If I'm not in control of my life, well, that's my greatest fear. So I do everything I can in my life. I push people away so that I keep control. For to me to live is to be loved and I do anything to get it and I do anything to keep it. Now, most of us have found something to substitute for Jesus Christ, haven't we? For me to live is family, friend, career, purpose, children, 
For me to live is to have that. You can take away everything, even Jesus, but don't take away that. Paul says there is only one definition of life that gives you joy, security, love, approval, contentment. And here it is, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. How about you? All those other things are are good things, but they mustn't be the ultimate thing. Christ is all. He can't plant churches anymore. He can't have his freedom anymore. He doesn't have very much dignity left. And yet he's saying, for me to live is Christ. He is my hope in life. He's my hope in death. If your life collapses because you lose something, children leave, you're an empty nester. Business collapses. Money in your pension pot is now worth less. Friends desert you at school. And if you think my life is not worth living now, that's because your life is placed in that thing. In 2008, when the financial crash hit the global economy, shrunk, contracted very, very quickly. There's a number of suicides in the major financial centers of the world. Why? Because tragically, people have placed their hope in their work, in their careers, and they would rather throw themselves from buildings than face the consequences, the reality of struggling through the difficulty of, of navigating this new financial landscape. They've placed too much weight on their career. Paul saw the hardness of life, and it didn't faze him. He saw life was like a furnace, and he trusted God in the midst of it. It's a little bit like the Olympics. Here are four, uh, here are four pictures of the Olympics. When someone goes to the Olympics, when they get trained to skate along water, to fire bullets, to, uh, to jump great distances and to have a six-pack like mine and throw, um, thank you, and to throw the discus as far as they could. When they're trained and skilled in that way, it takes devotion. It takes single-mindedness. I want to marry you, but I'm now going to train for the Olympics. I'm three years out. You'll have to wait. The Olympics are one year out, and I'm just going to have to up my intensity so leisure goes. I'm going to have to work 24-7. Diet, that's already in place. I'm going to get more strict, and so on. Everything is self-focused on one goal, which is to get the gold medal, to do your uttermost, to do your best. Everything else goes into second place. I want to pursue the Olympic dream and the Olympic success with all my might. I get one shot at it, and I want to give it my best. Everything is subservient to that goal. How can Paul live for Jesus Christ? Because Paul can see, here's some fuel for the, the coal of your heart, the, the, the furnace of your heart. Paul can see the priority of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who we thought last week, left the heavenly realm, left the heavenly palace, left it all. And he was single-minded for the glory of his Father, to win a people for him, to ransom them, to redeem them, no matter what it cost him, and it cost him absolutely everything. And he won a people for his father. All of Jesus' life and energies were consumed with the glory of his father and for our great good. And when you see that and you look at it and you read about it and you read about it again and again and again, 
and you come to services again and again and again over decades, you're all seeking to focus all your mental energies throughout the week and every Sunday on that one great truth that Jesus Christ prizes the glory of his Father above all things. It's a heavenly gold for him. And the offshoot of that is our great good that we are rescued. Like a lifeguard, like a savior, Jesus came from the glories of the heavenly realm to the cross for our great good. He took on flesh for our great good. He took on a cross and bore it for our great good. He's in heaven now interceding for us for our great good. Everything that Jesus has lived for for all eternity has been for the glory of his Father and for our great good. And when you think about that again and again and again, that is the source of joy that can displace whatever you are living for right now. And you can get your loves reordered. Like Augustine said centuries ago, it does have the power to change you. You're not just shuffling past a coffin of a great lady who is majestic in her dealings with people and who will be remembered. You are fueling your heart on a living truth of a dead but a living reigning king, the eternal king. How much time would you give to him? Would you give him 13 hours of your life so that you could bow and pay your respects? Would you give him your life, your all? How much does he deserve? Jesus Christ, my brother, my shepherd, my friend, my high king, my prince, or to me, to live is Christ. And to die, well, that's gain. Because I get to see him face to face. You can live humbly. You can live confidently in a hard world. Trusting the goodness of a father. For today and for tomorrow, whatever it brings. Why? Because you know the key to contentment and life. In verse 21. For to me to live is. It could be Christ even this morning for the first time.